So, uh, hello everyone, I'm Andy Papasquieu, as, uh, as I was previously introduced, and so the talk I'm giving today is titled, No One Is Ever Truly Gone, A Study of Relationships in Star Wars. So, let's begin. There are many aspects of George Lucas's Star Wars films and larger story that would be familiar to even the most sci-fi averse Orthodox Christians. The universal themes of love, friendship, and faith. Painful stumbling blocks, like losing loved ones, dealing with past transgressions and failure. As an Orthodox Christian that also has an interest in everything Star Wars and someone that just loves rewatching movies, it's beautiful to see so many familial themes within a franchise that enjoys enduring popularity worldwide. Star Wars is, at its core, a story about family. My talk will highlight a few of the many Orthodox themes within the Star Wars books and movies that reflect the numerous types of experiences we have in our own lives. And don't worry, the books I'll discuss are canon, so they actually happened in this fictional world. Note that I will not be discussing Rise of Skywalker because I need some more time to think about that film and its many, many, many mistakes. I've already said too much. Honestly, there are so many great moments in Episode Nine, but so many other decisions that I fear are influenced by, dare I say, thinking that someone should have unlimited power. I'll be discussing three items today. The first is the bond between Chirrut Imwe and Baze Malbus in 2016's Rogue One. The film tells the story of the um, eponymous rebel group that steals the plans to the Empire's Death Star. Chirrut and Baze, close friends and members of Rogue One, stand in for the conflict that lies within all who face oppression. Stand strong and do not allow your faith to waver or simply despair. They are essentially family through choice. The second item will be an analysis of the relationships present in 2017's The Last Jedi, specifically between Luke, Rey, and Kylo Ren. I'll touch on how the past looms over the present and the power of the teacher-student relationship and the lasting effects of such a bond. Lastly, I'll discuss the relationship between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Qui-Gon Jinn. In case you were wondering if I'm referring to old Ben Kenobi, you would be correct. The source material will largely be from a short story from a 2017 anthology called From a Certain Point of View and the 2019 novel Master and Apprentice. I may also veer into the film where it all began. I'm of course talking about Star Wars. Episode one, The Phantom Menace. Let's begin. The film Rogue One depicts the reluctant rebel Jin Erso, lifelong rebel captain Cassian Andor, and their quest to find out how to destroy the oppressive Galactic Empire's rumored new superweapon, the Death Star. We quickly see long-lasting war exacts a heavy toll, and avoiding getting involved is simply a luxury. Jin Erso, a former pirate of sorts, is the daughter of captive scientist Galen Erso, the architect of the Death Star. As an act of rebellion, he has designed a fatal flaw in the weapon. The third act largely tells the story of trying to steal those plans. During the first act, Jin and Cassian venture to Jeddah City to try and meet a local pirate who's holding a defected Imperial pilot prisoner. The pilot claims he has a message from Galen Erso. As Jin and Cassian look for a contact in Jeddah City, we meet Chirrut Imwe and Baze Malbus for the first time. We encounter Chirrut, a guardian of the wills, seated outside the sacked Jedi temple in Jeddah City. He offers a repeated prayer of sorts, both aloud and quietly to himself. The Force is with me, and I am one with the Force. The Force is with me, and I am one with the Force. The Force is with me, and I am one with the Force. In previous films, the Jedi are a sort of religious order, following the light side of the Force. However, never before have we seen any sort of Force prayer. With the Jedi Order destroyed, all that remains are laity, so to speak. They cling to what they can, determined to carry on their faith. His faith is shown in action minutes later as he strides confidently into a skirmish with stormtroopers and saves the pair of rebels, Jen and Cassian. This confrontation is also notable because it confirms that Chirrut is completely blind. He fought and defeated stormtroopers with just a staff. And remember, stormtroopers are elite fighting forces. Only stormtroopers are so precise. Still, 
Those around him are stunned at his ability to defend himself from attack while outnumbered, no less. But as Orthodox Christians, we know that there are many things that cannot be seen with our physical eyes. His friend Bayes, however, does provide him with cover fire, enough that when Chirrut later declares he was kept safe by the force, Bayes clarifies, I protected you. When those around him ask if Chirrut is a Jedi, Bayes counters that Chirrut is but a dreamer and a fool. This is the first hint we get that while Chirrut and Bayes are inseparably close friends, they do not share the same faith. Guardians of the Wills, written by Greg Rucka, offers a glimpse into this world before the events of Rogue One. As a refugee speaks with Bayes and Chirrut, she begs the guardians for help. Guardian, Bayes said. One, him, referring to Chirrut. He won't acknowledge the shared role that they once had together, their shared community, fellowship, and belonging. Quote, the suffering was everywhere, less for some, greater for others, but in some way, in some fashion, for all who lived on Jeddah. It made Bayes, who had nursed in anger all his own for so long, even angrier. The last part of that quote, it made Bayes, who had nursed in anger all his own for so long, even angrier. How easily we can fall astray when faced with suffering, with heartbreak, with loss. And our own character can nurture or act against these feelings. It may feel like there is no other way. For Bayes, seeing the death and destruction wrought by imperial occupation on Jeddah pushed him further away from his faith. It widened his heart's fissures into chasms. Turning toward love in the face of suffering is the answer we know as Orthodox Christians. But this doesn't necessarily make living with the source of that suffering immediately easier. We must push through and have faith in Christ's visitation and salvation, however we can, however difficult. Later, during a moment of light bickering, Bayes suddenly states, You're very lucky I'm your friend, you know that? I do know that, Chirrut says. Though I wonder, why are you saying that now? I'm saying it right now because I'm wondering why anybody would bother to put up with you. Ah, says Chirrut. I often wonder the same thing about you. Our friends are not always those we get along with best, but they are those that help us to navigate our way through life. The hardest relationships are often the most meaningful. Chirrut and Bayes both find both find being friends with the other difficult. Chirrut, because Bayes doubts the power of the Force and exudes negativity and defeat. Bayes, because Chirrut's faith seems folly. In a moment of introspection in a prison, we hear Chirrut offering the Jesus Prayer-esque Force Prayer again, while Bayes mockingly says that Chirrut is praying for the prison door to open. At this point, Chirrut reveals that not only was Bayes also a guardian of the wills, but was once the most devoted guardian of us all, and that now he's bothered by the fact that he knows this, power, this prayer does have power. He knows that this prayer has power. Now, we don't know exactly what a guardian of the wills is, besides some sort of defender of a forced religion, but something happened to Bayes that tore him apart. He's lost his faith. The details of this apostasy are left unsaid, aside from the imperial terror on Jeddah, but all the better for us to paint that story. How many of us know someone who changed? Someone who was once an example and an inspiration, but no longer. One who, for various reasons, may not identify with our faith anymore. Chirrut and Bayes' friendship is all the more real because of the difference in their belief. It's a demonstration for us, that friends and family can remain important in our lives, no matter what has happened. Everyone has a, pe a past, and everyone has a future. Don't give up on those close to you that need strength. And when you need strength, pray that they don't give up on you. Later in the prison, Chirrut offers a biting yet valid assessment of Cassian, the rebel captain. A capable leader we've already seen commit crimes in the name of war and expediency. He tells Cassian, who's desperately trying to pick the lock of their cell, there is more than one sort of prison, Captain. I sense that you carry yours with you wherever you go. What a powerful statement from a stranger in a cell. 
The trappings and limitations we so often remind ourselves of in our own minds are often are of our own creation. She wouldn't forgive me. He won't talk to me. That will never happen. I'll never forgive them. It's certainly a temptation and a stumbling block to relive the past and to divine the future in our own minds, to feel that one's actions and future are confined due to something long gone. Orthodoxy has confession and partaking of the Eucharist as tools for releasing past sins, cleansing ourselves, and communing with God. What a benefit these life-giving gifts would be to such conflicted and burdened characters we see in what is ultimately a war film. I'm reminded of the song Halo, not by Beyonce, but by Depeche Mode. You wear guilt like shackles on your feet, like a halo in reverse. I can feel the discomfort in your seat, and in your head, it's worse. There's a pain and a famine in your heart aching to be free. I realize that a British electronic band founded in the 80s isn't a part of Star Wars or science fiction, but they may as well be from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But let us be careful to not wear halos in reverse, to let our guilt determine how we see ourselves and in turn, how others see us. When Jeddah City is destroyed in a test fire of the Death Star, Chirrut asks Baze for some desperate description of the death and destruction he no doubt feels nearby. Baze, tell me. All of it. The whole city. Tell me. It's as if only his closest friend could confirm the atrocities. Chirrut feels at that moment that he can only reliably see through Baze's eyes. And with Jeddah City destroyed, the rebel group <coughs> flies to Edu to find Galen Erso. Unbeknownst to the others, Cassian plans to execute Galen in accordance with orders received from his superiors in order to silence him and prevent further chaos. But in this moment, Chirrut's prescience is revealed when he again asks Baze what Cassian Andor's visage reveals. Does he look like a killer? No, he has the face of a friend, Baze replies. Only Chirrut, the blind yet faithful force user, is aware that Cassian is in this very moment quietly planning murder in the name of saving millions of lives. The force moves darkly near a creature that's about to kill, he adds. So can we sense darkness in others? Not always, not clearly, but we understand that evil effects, evil has effects that do not reside within a single person but reaches out and has manifold effects. Chirrut sees clearly despite his physical blindness, because of his habits and his faith, honed as a monastic-like guardian of the wills. He's often seen simply sitting quietly while those around him worry. Recall, you will know, when you are calm, at peace, passive, Yoda explains in The Empire Strikes Back when Luke asks him how he is to discern the good from the bad. Christ has conquered all, and the Holy Spirit is, of course, only good. But we, as the church militant, live with good and evil. Discernment takes discipline and comes with stillness. From Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. The most powerful moment between Chirrut and Bayes begins as Chirrut walks calmly amidst laser fire to flip a final mechanical switch during the film's third act, calmly repeating his own prayer. The force is with me, I am one with the force. The Force is with me, and I am one with the Force. It's clear that he trusts in the Force completely, to Baze's horror as he provides cover fire for his friend, repeating, repeatedly crying out his name and screaming, Come back! After walking unscathed to the terminal, he turns the switch. His task complete, only then is Chirrut taken down by enemy fire as Baze runs to recover his friend, seemingly unconcerned with his own safety. He kneels down and lovingly picks up and holds Chirrut. He vacillates between looking at him and looking away, struggling with the pain of the moment, pleading not to leave him while struggling to comfort his dying friend. Two contrasting yet similar men are present at this moment. We see one man physically wounded and dying, and a man physically whole yet emotionally laid bare. With his dying words, Chirrut says, Look for the force, and you will always find me. The force is with me. We then see Baze powerfully finish the prayer, and I am one with the force. 
His strength replenished enough to continue the fight a few minutes longer before joining his friend in death. We don't know exactly if Baze is in good standing with the force or how exactly that works, but I like to think he spent his final moments unshackled, unburdened, and no longer wearing his halo in reverse, living as the person he once was, the most devoted guardian of them all. I'm again reminded of the song Halo, but this time it's the chorus that applies to just about the entire Rogue One crew as they meet their end on Scarif. There's something to be said for this community of rebels we meet during the film. They left their pasts behind and joined together to face certain death, to protect the few people they still have left to protect. There's a moment we realize there is no way out for them. The moment we remember they aren't in the next film. The moment we wonder, how does it feel to know that the end is very near? Saints they were not, except for perhaps Chirrut, although he cracked quite a few skulls. Saints they were not, no, but in the end, they found their purpose and perhaps some redemption. From the song Halo, and when our worlds, they fall apart, when the walls come tumbling in, though we may deserve it, it will be worth it. So the next sentence out of my mouth may be controversial to some. Um, I'm by no means pro-Chewbacca dying. However, if you're going to have the Wookiee die in the Rise of Skywalker, spoiler alert, let him die in peace. Bringing him back tells us nothing, that nothing really matters, and it removes the impact of the potential lesson about unrestrained emotion, specifically anger, that Rey could have learned. Plus, it creates a haunting symmetry with Kylo Ren killing his father, Rey killing Chewbacca. That's not the sentence I actually meant. The controversial sentence I meant is actually this. The Last Jedi is my favorite Star Wars film. I'll allow the gasps to subside. <laughs> if you want to go to the other talk, I, I understand. Now, whoever's still, whoever's still here, the empty room... It's a creative film, it's beautiful. It has so many moments and lessons. It's the one I think about most frequently. The three most pivotal characters in the film, Luke Skywalker, Kylo Ren, and Rey become deeply intertwined. Kylo Ren and Luke are blood relatives, yet Kylo Ren hates Luke. Luke doesn't know who Rey is. Rey knows of Luke from legend, and she's appalled by Kylo Ren, yet she feels she can help him. The relationships between these relatives and non-relatives are memorable for several reasons. They show us the power of human connections, the bond between a teacher and a student, and that the past weighs heavily on the future. Among those compelling characters in the sequel trilogy is Kylo Ren, formerly Ben Solo. It's revealed through three beautiful, unreliable narrator flashbacks that his uncle and Jedi instructor Luke saw darkness in him, and considered but for a moment, the highly problematic path forward of killing his student and nephew. As Luke describes, and for the briefest moment of pure instinct, I thought I could stop it. It passed like a fleeting shadow, and I was left with shame and with consequence. And the last thing I saw were the eyes of a frightened boy whose master had failed him. This pivotal moment would go on to shape the lives of everyone we know in that galaxy far, far away. How many of us can think back to one moment as instrumental in who we are, for good or bad? Those closest to us can cause us the most pain. We can be shaped by this to a great extent, sometimes to the detriment of not only ourselves, but those around us. Kylo Ren is fundamentally shaped by Luke's abandonment from his point of view. The pain and anger of the moment is clear again in his rage in confronting Luke Skywalker on crate. Did you come back to say you forgive me? To save my soul, Kylo Ren asks, dripping with rage and sarcasm. After an exchange, Luke earnestly apologizes in a few short words. He calls Kylo Ren by his true name. I failed you, Ben. I'm sorry. Kylo Ren is all the more enraged at this. Luke has learned and grown, while Kylo Ren is as deeply wounded as ever. We put an incredible amount of trust into our teachers and mentors. Students take the risk that they will help us more than they will hurt us. 
that our school teacher will be kind and show us all that we need to learn, that our parents will be able to manage the homeschool workload in addition to all the other responsibilities they have, that our supervisors and seniors will guide us, strengthen us, and train us to one day replace them. What a devastation it is when they fail. We can grow from this failure and learn from it, or we can let it guide us where it will. What we cannot always see is that these grand figures in our lives are only human, or whatever species Yoda is. They make mistakes. They have pains and struggles that they carry with them. How clearly Luke's are laid bare before us in The Last Jedi. The first thing The Force Awakens told us in the opening crawl, the first thing it said, Luke Skywalker has vanished. What could possibly cause the hero of the previous films to leave it all? In The Force Awakens, Han Solo told us that a student turned on him. The Last Jedi reveals to us that few things are ever simple when it comes to a master and a student. Their lives become intertwined from the very moment they met. Yoda, from beyond the grave, offers Luke the comfort he seeks after he fails yet another student, Rey. Pass on what you have learned, strength, mastery, but weakness, folly, failure also. Yes, failure most of all. The greatest teacher of failure is. Luke, we are part of what they grow beyond. That is the true burden of all masters. There is risk on the part of the teacher as well. The teacher and the student are inseparable, forever tied together. Where Luke failed Ben by acting rashly and not trusting in love and kindness, he may yet show to Ray. Where Ben sees Luke's failure and clothes himself in Kylo Ren, Ray may yet learn from his failure and put on goodness. Luke and his darkening student and nephew, Ben Solo, could have learned from St. Barsanufius of Optina. Quote, one must disregard the doubts, just like lustful and blasphemous thoughts. Pay no attention to them. Disregard them, and your enemy, the devil, will not be able to withstand it. He'll leave you, and since he's proud and cannot bear the disdain. But if you enter into the conversation with them, since the lustful thoughts, blasphemies, and doubts are not your own, he'll bombard you, swamp you, kill you. One of my math professors in college had a black and white picture taped to her office door. It was a painting of the Titanic, sinking. The caption was something like, sometimes the only outcome of your life is to be a warning to others. I was going through the most difficult period of my life the semester I had that math class. I was at nearly every office hours my professor had. I struggled mightily in the class, but learned so much in the end. Her patience with me is something I will never forget. Her answers to my questions were so simple, so direct, that it changed the way I think about nearly everything. I'm so grateful for that class. I often wonder how my professor's past informed her character and her teaching style. What experience she had as both a teacher and before that as a student. If she was passing on the serenity she had learned from her own teacher by imitation or opposition to them. Or if her style was simply innate. I frequently thought I would fail her class, but I didn't want to be an example like the Titanic. I didn't want to sink. I didn't want to be a warning. I survived the class. I'm proud to have been her student. She took me on as a risk, and I like to think that she's proud of me as well. The best moments in The Last Jedi are those between Rey and Kylo Ren. In this film, these characters on opposite sides of the battle unfolding on screen develop a unique bond that lets them see one another as if they're sitting in the same room. Granted, they cannot see the surroundings of the other, but just the other. It's a fantastic visual effect. Beginning as enemies, through several of these forced connections, they begin to quietly confide in one another. Kylo Ren at one point during a verbal joust quietly agrees with Rey's judgment that he is indeed a monster for murdering his father, Han Solo. His face is a painting of one filled with pain and regret. From the novelization of The Last Jedi by Jason Fry, she stared back at him and found his eyes full of hurt. Hurt and conflict. Yes, I am, Kylo said, and there was no menace in his voice, only misery. 
After Ray learns that her parents were simply ordinary people, she begins to recount her feelings aloud of loneliness after this revelation. After several moments, the film reveals that she is sharing her feelings not with Luke, the person we expected. Not with Luke, the reluctant teacher. Not with Luke, the legend and disappointment. The first person she shares this revelation with about her family is Kylo Ren. The protagonist only feels safe confiding in the antagonist. Her community, while already small, is further minimized when she realizes Luke is too far gone to give help, uh, too far gone to help or give her anything beyond some words, grand proclamations, and some green thalassiren milk. The only person that can understand her pain is the bad guy. This bond seems unusual at first, but makes sense when one considers that these are two individuals. Individuals. They feel utterly alone and trapped by their circumstances. Kylo Ren says as much when he tells her she's not alone and offers his hand to her for the first time. He's trapped by his position of power beneath an oppressive teacher, the structure of the militaristic order he's joined, and the pain of his past while she's trapped by the inescapable sense of abandonment. While Ray and Kylo Ren remain enemies at the end of this film, both have without a doubt been rattled to the core by the other. Ray grew up effectively alone in a desert, living hand to mouth, every moment in the blazing sun a fight for survival. Every moment in her improvised shelter, a memory of abandonment and a shrine to junk from other worlds. You can't stop needing them, it's your greatest weakness. You look for them everywhere, in Han Solo, now in Skywalker, Kylo Ren astutely notes. She has earned some semblance of fellowship in The Force Awakens, but upon meeting a living legend in Luke, is utterly alone again when met with his reticence. Kylo Ren is upper management in the First Order, yet feels torn between the light and the darkness. Both are in his blood, yet he was seduced by the darkness. He has no one but a burned helmet of his grandfather in which to confide, and even then the words feel like pleas for an end to the conflict within him. The legacy of his family is a burden. Ray has no family. We don't need to be exactly like the ones we help, and we don't need to resemble those from which we seek help. Comfort and guidance can come from outside of what we consider kin or family. There's an anthology of stories called From a Certain Point of View that take place in the periphery of the original Star Wars film. I highly, highly recommend the book. A particular vignette called Master and Apprentice is a wonderful example of the powerful relationship between teacher and student. This bond is as unique as that between any family, between any friends. It's the holy glorious prophet Elijah and the holy prophet Elisha. St. Paul and St. Timothy, St. Paisios of Manathos, and his countless students. We especially believe as Orthodox Christians that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Our teachers ideally act to build us up, and in their guidance, they become examples of that love for us. We pray for the saints to intercede for us, as we would ask a friend to pray for us. We seek the shelter of those that have departed from this world, knowing that they reside with God in heaven. One may wonder how saints may view us here in the world. It's quite a thought. The short story, Master and Apprentice, has some images that may be something akin to what the saints see. Through considering this, we may add, however meagerly, to our understanding of Christ, Pantocrator, the all-powerful, and those that dwell near to him. With Christ's death on the cross and resurrection, we hold true that death has no power over us that this life is temporary and the kingdom of God awaits the faithful. Our lives, however long or short, are ultimately brief when compared to the kingdom that is eternal. While God knows everything, we do have free will as his creation. Let us keep these things in mind as we look at the short story, Master and Apprentice. In the first Star Wars film, no, not the Phantom Menace, as Luke races off to the Lars homestead, fearing what has happened to his aunt and uncle at the hands of the stormtroopers, Obi-Wan is left behind at the Jawa Sandcrawler. The film doesn't show what Obi-Wan was up to during this time. Recall that instead we follow along with Luke as he surveys the death of his only family 
and gazes up at the twin sons for the last time. This short story involves Obi-Wan taking this time to call upon his former master, Qui-Gon Jinn, who died decades earlier. Having become one with the Force, Qui-Gon centers himself, takes shape in front of Obi-Wan, and surveys his former student. From the short story, while Qui-Gon perceives the physical realities of Obi-Wan's appearance, he is not limited to human sight any longer. He also sees the confident general of the Clone Wars, the strong young Padawan who followed his master into battle, even the rebellious little boy at the temple that no master was in a hurry to train. They are all equally part of Obi-Wan, each stage of his existence vivid in this moment. The master remarks to himself several times how imminent Obi-Wan's death at the hands of his former student feels and how soon they'll be fully reunited. It's incredible to consider someone that has passed gazing upon us and seeing us all at once, at all stages of our lives, at the sum total of our earthly existence. Provided his all-encompassing view of Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon could remain disinterested and distant from his former student. After all, what are the affairs of a crazy old wizard next to the knowledge of the Force? Yet their bond endures. As he offers comfort to Obi-Wan's fear that he's lost his edge during his exile, anyone can fight. Given a weapon and an enemy, anyone can use a lightsaber, given due training or even good luck. But to stand and wait, to have so much patience and fortitude, that, Obi-Wan, is a greater achievement than you know. Few could have accomplished it. Indeed, patience, as we've already heard, is paramount in our lives. To himself, Qui-Gon adds, every step of this long, unfulfilling journey is one Obi-Wan had to take alone. And yet he never faltered. It is the kind of victory that most people never recognize, and yet the bedrock of all goodness is built upon. Physical prowess is not valued here, nor cunning, nor cleverness necessarily, but patience, quietly enduring. <coughs> it suffices to say that waiting on this harsh desert world, watching over the son of the student that betrayed you, is the definition of long-suffering. How many saints are there that endured and persevered in the face of seemingly insurmountable challenges? How many seemingly ordinary people do we know that live saintly lives through the moments they quietly overcome? Let us remember that there is nothing ordinary about enduring with great patience. With his parting, Qui-Gon shares with the reader, the most beautiful form of mastery is the art of letting go. This last sentiment is akin to two particular elements of scripture, sharing our burdens with one another and fulfilling the law of Christ, as St. Paul writes in the sixth chapter of his letter to the Galatians, combined with the 11th chapter of the gospel according to St. Matthew. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Trusting completely in God for all of our needs is life-saving, while shouldering the troubles and easing the cares of those around us spreads love. Detaching ourselves from distractions and temptations while focusing on Christ can be the challenge of a lifetime. But trusting in Christ is the only way to live on. I can't help but wonder how Obi-Wan must feel seeing his former master in front of him again and how the joy of this encounter must be balanced with his own memory of his former student, Anakin. Recall that Obi-Wan took on Anakin as a student at Qui-Gon's bidding. They were both too young to be a knight and a Padawan, respectively, yet they both carried on, trusting in Qui-Gon's judgment. As Obi-Wan and Anakin grew closer and closer, they could not escape the past. Anakin's memory and loss of his mother, guiding his fear of future loss, Obi-Wan seeking to trust in Anakin's ability, Qui-Gon's dying wish echoing in his mind, promise me you'll train the boy, and his final words to his departing teacher, yes, master. The pain he must have felt seeing the boy from Tatooine burning, raging with his hatred on Mustafar, you were my brother, Anakin, I loved you, 
to then faithfully watch over the secret child of Anakin to protect him from his own father, his student, his brother. He could have abandoned his duty, finally giving in. But Obi-Wan, no doubt, time and time again, came back to the words of his own dying master on Naboo. The last wish is as powerful in his memory as they were at the moment they were given so many years ago. The novel Master and Apprentice, so not the short story, but then a fully fleshed out novel by the same author, Claudia Gray, delves into Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon's relationship in its early years. Simply put, they did not see eye to eye. Qui-Gon is something of a hippie. He's a free thinker who criticizes the Jedi Order, yet is faithful to it. Obi-Wan is mostly a rule follower, but hard to predict at times. He is impulsive. Perhaps we see this dynamic between us and our parents, our spouse, our children. It's not so far-fetched to imagine this dynamic being destructive. There's a passage in the novel during which Qui-Gon consults with his own master's <coughs> former apprentice, Ryle Avaros. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan have been sent to help Avaros with the enthronement of a young royal named Fanry, whom Avaros has been guiding toward this moment for years. The memory of Avaros's former Padawan, Nim, weighs heavily on him and looms over the conversation about, roles, about the roles of teachers and students. Avaros killed his student Nim when her mind was taken over by an enemy and she began attacking everyone around them. It's an experience that lies far in the past but has repercussions in the present. Qui-Gon murmured, you think that if you succeed with Fanry, it will make up for what happened to Nim? Nothing makes up for it. Avaros's voice had already grown hoarse. Nothing ever can, nothing ever could but at least it won't make me feel like I'm poison to anybody I get close to. That made Qui-Gon grimace. I've been feeling as though I were, not poison to Obi-Wan, but completely incapable of helping him. Avaros replies, I don't see it. You two wouldn't be together after this long if you weren't. I'd considered ending our partnership before now, Qui-Gon confesses. The suffering of a master over past transgressions is a burden that shapes every thought Avaros has. He confides in his younger brother of sorts, Qui-Gon, that he simply wants to feel like a helpful rather than hurtful presence. Obi-Wan's master has his own troubles, tempted by the thought that he and his student would be better off separately. We know that struggle can build up a person, that confronting difficulty is the only way to grow. Fear is, after all, the path to darkness. Later in their discussion, Qui-Gon thinks to himself, it was tough listening to the man pretending to be so worried about a Padawan who was clearly smart and capable, bound for a bright future no matter what Qui-Gon had gotten right, right or wrong. It's clear that the unrelenting thought that Qui-Gon shouldn't be Obi-Wan's master any longer is rooted in fear. Fear of failing his student. Fear of ruining him. Fear of misguiding him. Of not being the presence that nourishes. Learning to love another person, especially one very different from ourselves, is the path to Christ. Through the course of the novel, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan realize that they balance each other. Their opposing personalities actually give them strength and greater perspective. It is for their benefit that they were matched together. There's an incredible quote from Dr. Sean McGuire talking to his patient in the film Goodwill Hunting. He's referring to a loving relationship between spouses, but the quote applies just as well to people matched together like Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, master and apprentice. You're not perfect, sport, and let me save you the suspense. The girl that you met, she's not perfect either. But the question is whether or not you're perfect for each other. That's the whole deal. I'll narrate a passage from the end of the story, Master and Apprentice. Qui-Gon begins. I realize we've had difficulties, but this mission changed things, I think, and for the better. If you would prefer another master, I won't be offended. If it were up to me, though, we would continue on as we are. Slowly, Obi-Wan began to smile. 
You know, Master, I've realized I wouldn't learn nearly as much from someone who always agreed with me. Qui-Gon grinned back and they clasped hands, more truly partners than ever. Throughout the course of the novel, their initially tumultuous relationship eventually becomes the ideal of a mentor-mentee relationship, akin to a reluctant geronda, or elder, and a novice. Proper love and guidance, even with differing personalities, does bear fruit. In that way, the connection between a master and apprentice lives on forever in the way that it shapes them both. There really is no former master and former apprentice, simply master and apprentice. To conclude, I want to revisit perhaps the most iconic character in all of Star Wars. I'm of course talking about Jar Jar Binks. I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, come back. <laughs> no, I'm talking about Baby Yoda. No, I'm, I'm kidding again. I'm referring to the original Yoda. I want to point out that even in death, Yoda continued to provide guidance to Luke on Achto during The Last Jedi, and in this, a circle was completed. How beautiful that this seminal master-student relationship is illustrated on an island that was the site of a real Orthodox monastery founded sometime during the sixth century after Christ and inhabited for centuries thereafter. The island, called Skellig Michael, paints a parallel for us, one begun by George Lucas 40 years ago and completed by the new generation of storytellers at Lucasfilm. The beehive-like cells we see in the film are exact reconstructions of the cells still present on the island, which are protected to this day. These cells are a visual connection between Star Wars and the site of a monastery that was the spiritual battlefield of our Orthodox ancestors. No doubt, as Yoda shepherded Luke in the ways of the Force, so too did many elders become shepherds to many monks, leading them directly to God. Through their memory and the intercessions of the saints and those around us, blood family or spiritual family, we draw nearer and nearer to God, and in that way, some bonds are never broken. So thank you. That's the end of my talk. If there are any discussion points or questions, I'm happy to take them. Yes, I have lots of issues and difficulties with the, the recent the 7, 8, 9 mm -hmm. But there's always been this sneaking suspicion in the back of my mind that there's more to them than a lot of people give me credit for. So it's interesting to hear that. Thank you. Brought out specifically. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm often the one among my friends and coworkers who dies on the hill of, no, there's good things in these new movies. No, don't. No, come back. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. There's, there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot that's there that's not great, that even I don't like. But there's a lot of really, really good stuff. Yeah? Do you personally believe Jar Jar is a Sith Lord? No, that's an, it's an amazing write-up, and I would, I would have loved for it to be true. But I, I happen to identify with Kylo Ren and just let the past die sometimes, you know? Just, it's, a, it's a wrong mindset that he has, but in that context, I think it's good. <laughs> Just let Jar Jar... In, in, um, in uh, the Aftermath Star Wars book, so these are all, like I said, all the books I'm talking about are canon, so it's okay, you can read them. They're, they actually happened. So in Aftermath, though, there's these little vignettes between the chapters that just take place in all parts of the Star Wars world, and um, one of them is uh, on Naboo, and there's this uh, kind of orphanage outing you know, and there's these kids that are all refugees, you know, they're, they're burned and maimed and they're just really having a hard time just, and their caretakers are just trying to, you know, have them be out in the sun for a day. And there's this uh, Gungan juggler in the town square who's, you know, making a fool of himself. And uh, it's revealed that it's Jar Jar, you know, that, that he was viewed as uh, uh, an idiot by everyone for nominating the chancellor to become, you know, for nominating Palpatine, basically, for creating the emperor, really. And so he was cast out of the Senate. And so there's a great quote that's something like, uh, uh, the adults all ignored him, but the children, they were enamored by him, which is an amazing meta quote of how we view Jar Jar. You know, the adults hated him, 
but the kids loved him. My, my third grade school photo is a matching shirt and shorts of Jar, like it's Jar Jars on them. It's amazing. It's, I'm branded, you know. Yeah, the past looms over the present, right? Yeah, yeah. On the subject of Jar Jar, I was wondering mm-hmm. if you'd ever heard the theory that uh, there's a real fighting style, a monastic fighting style yeah. in China called the, the Way of the Drunk or something. Yeah, the Drunken Master, I think, or Drunken Monkey, I think is yeah. what it's also called. Yeah. Um, that, like, it, it mirrors, like, just stumbling around, but it's an actual fighting style that, like, right. is effective. Mm-hmm. And Jar Jar uses something like that. Like, yeah. yeah. Seemingly inadvertently he uses it, but yeah. And and what's wonderful is I'm not familiar with like a lot of martial arts films, but I know that the actor that plays Chirrut Imwe, uh Donnie Yen, I think is his name. I think he's in like several like pretty well put together uh Hong Kong style martial arts films. And so it's it's nice that he's in he's in Rogue One too as well, you know, putting his, his skills to use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's wonderful to see. I love all this, uh, you know, all these connections coming into these films. It's it's nice. So, I, I said earlier about like like relating to like theosis and you know symbolism in Star Trek, but I think really one of the best ways to describe it is becoming one with the Force mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, yeah. In the sense that like you know uh, when Jedi die, they are reunited by being one with the Force. Mm-hmm. One with the Force. So right. do you think that was I don't, I'm not going to say it's intentional, but do you think that that, um, that parallel um, between Christianity and uh, Star Wars was something that had forethought? I think so. I think George Lucas was mainly informed by, um, I'll say, Far Eastern religions, like uh, more Buddhism, uh, specifically Buddhism. So I think he, that was probably his context for that idea of everyone becoming one. Um, but uh, as Orthodox Christians, I mean, there's so much good that we can find in—I uh, don't want to say appropriating, but in, in you know, like, like we've heard before in the in the Deacon James's keynote, you know, in just in, in pulling it in and, and synthesizing it, we can find beauty in it. Um, I know the design of the city of Naboo was uh, based on Constantinople, um, on um, Istanbul. So it's that Hagia Sophia's you know grand dome is ever present in. All the buildings on Naboo are domed, basically. There are these grand structures, so you can pull in all sorts of all sorts of great things. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. On his deathbed and even in death, yeah. Right, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, no, it, it really is. And for the Jedi, there is no legitimacy without a master. You can't be a Jedi and not have been an apprentice. It doesn't exist. It's not... The rebel Jedi are all the ones that leave the Order and go off on their own. They're viewed as uh, discordant with the rest of the Order. And so, and even Qui-Gon confiding in uh, that character I mentioned, Ryle Avaros, I mentioned that he's a a brother of sorts, they had the same master. Ryle, before, was apprenticed to uh, Count Dooku, and uh, he graduated and went on, and now Qui-Gon became Count Dooku's apprentice and graduated and now has his own. So there's, a, there's this wonderful bond, you know, sort of, not quite apostolic succession, but there, there's a nice bond there that exists between, between these characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes? Yes. Right. And this moment when it's revealed to Ray that no, your family's not yeah. special. It's you know, it's, it's I, you. I love that. Um, and then yeah. of course the next movie says just kidding, your your blood actually is special. Nothing <laughs> matters, yeah. It's like <laughs> it's like a month. Mo- yeah. 
Christian identity, what, you know, what is, you know, our, is the family line inherently important, like, in Star Wars? I think it can be. It can be a benefit or a hurt. Like I say, you know, Ben Solo is, has a great bloodline, really, you know? <laughs> well, except for Darth Vader, but before that... <laughs> He was a pre- he was the, he's his ancestor is the chosen one you know I mean and yeah. and ended up being a great hero right but he's burdened by this you know he uses it to his detriment he hates it you know he he hates the uh, the goodness in them it uses it as weakness as so often the the evil do but I think it's a it's a powerful plot line in Last Jedi to have her be descended from nobody like it doesn't need to be like a Exactly, she's grafted into it, and it's like she says, she says something like, I, "I always knew it was there, like my my connection to this thing that I don't know how to describe." And uh, it's it's wonderful that, like I said, Chirrut has this uh, kind of monastic uh, livelihood. Ray has a monastic life. I mean, she grew up by herself, struggling, suffering, alone. You know that stillness is something she's very comfortable with, and I think that is why she has these force abilities, you know? It's a better story. It's a better story than, oh, uh, you did your ancestry DNA, turns out you've got a bunch of midichlorians, great, good job, you know? It's like, it's just, it's not a great story. I, there was a podcast I listened to that um, they said something like, okay, so in episode one we find out that the um, being a Jedi is actually a very rare blood disease. <laughs> that, that allows you to move objects with your mind and control people. It's like, well, what are we doing here, you know? I mean, we're taking the, the story out of it, the magic, you know, the, the magic, the, the power that the story has. It, it's reduced to a, you know, you can pay a $35 copay and find out if you're a Jedi. Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> Sorry for the Canadians. A, a copay is... Just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, thank you.